How are we doing, church? Doing all right? All right, about half. Good. Uh, I'm going to work cut out for me. Grab your Bibles if you got them. If not, there's one right in front of you. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We'll be in verses 4 through 9. Uh, and we are in our sixth and final week of this series called Ancient Future, where we've been studying the Shema. So at this point, if you've been tracking with us, uh, here is the Shema. It begins in verse 4. It's, and it's called the Shema because that first word here in Hebrew is Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And what's happening here is that Moses has gathered the, the nation of Israel, and they are on the verge of stepping into the promised land. And he's re-warning them, re-instructing them. That's what the book of Deuteronomy is all about. And it's that, that last little, whatever you do, just don't forget to keep the main thing the main thing, to love God and to pass on that faith to this up-and-coming generation. It's, parents, it's like, it's like right before you send your kid off to the first overnight camp, and you're like, you have to brush your teeth. Okay, it's that kind of thing, but the stakes are much, much higher. And then what Moses is going to do for the rest of the passages that we're going to study today, it's really all of the rest of six and all of seven and all of eight, is he's going to give them this big old warning. And the warning is this, is that be careful not to forget God as he blesses you. Because all throughout the Old Testament, that Israel never did really did well with blessing. They never really did well with blessing. In fact, it was in those moments when they were desperate for God that they leaned into him most. And I think, I think that the message that Moses gives to the children of Israel is also the message that the church needs to hear today. John Calvin says it this way in his commentary on Deuteronomy, which I know all of you were reading this week with me, but let me just remind you what John Calvin said. He says this, first of all, Moses shows how base and unworthy would be their ingratitude if, when loaded with so many excellent benefits by God, they should cast away the recollection of him for as his goodness was inestimable in giving them cities built by the hands of others and in transferring to them whatever others had prepared by their great labor and industry, so would their impiety be the more detestable in neglecting them. When he daily set himself before them in this abundant store of blessing, let us learn, therefore, from this passage that we are invited by God's liberality to honor him and that whenever he deals kindly by us, he places his glory before our eyes. But on the other hand, we should remember that what ought to be, as it were, vehicles to lift up our minds on high are, by our own fault, converted into obstacles and clogs, and that therefore we ought to be the more upon our guard. That is my goal, is that by the time we walk out of here today, we would understand what John Calvin said. But I, I wish, this probably, this is why I don't write stuff, because if I could sound like this, I would write, write, write. But you're going to hear that message from the voice of an overeducated redneck from Dillon, South Carolina, and the way those of us here at Old Walmart can understand, okay? So here's what Moses does. He says, first and foremost, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then pass that on to the upcoming generation. And then you get to verse 10, and here's the warning. And he says, and when? And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give to you. Now, one thing, just notice this. He doesn't say if. He doesn't say if God does what he says he's going to do. He says when God gives you this land, the promised land. And, and one of the things that some of you need to hear is just this, is that God is who he says he is, and he always keeps his promises. And so this generation may think, God, why are you so slow? And God's like, I'm never slow. I'm always on time. Rarely early, but always on time. That God is who he says he is, and he always keeps his promises. And sometimes, oftentimes, we are the recipient of a promise that he made to a previous generation. In fact, how many of you were here last week and heard Pastor Jerry just throw down on the Shema? Amen? Amen. Do you realize, do you realize that we stand on the shoulders of that man? Do you realize that a big part of the promise that we are receiving as a church of 1122 is because we stand on the shoulders of men and women of generations that have gone before us? And so what Moses is saying here is, hey, listen, the promised land that you get to receive goes all the way back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You see, church of 1122, please know this. What we're doing is not new. It's just our turn. 
that we stand on the shoulders of generations and generations and generations that have gone before us. That's a big reason why Pastor Jerry was here. I wanted our whole church to see my pastor on whose shoulders I stand. And not only that, you guys realize in 1937 at Jacksonville Beach, a new church was planted called Rising Tide Methodist Church. And men and women gathered above a bakery at the beach and they prayed. They begged God that he would move, that revival would show up in Jacksonville. Little did they know it would happen on a Walmart three miles away 80 years later. You understand that? That God is who he says he is, and he always keeps his promises. And so he says, listen, when God, not if God, when God gives you the land that he promised, goes on to say, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, And when you eat and are full, here's the warning, then take care lest you forget the Lord. And then he goes on to just really drive it home. So take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I don't know about you. I hope you take your Bible seriously when you read it. But don't you read that and be like, how could they ever forget? I mean, how could the nation of Israel ever forget when they waltz into the promised land and they move into a house they didn't build and they eat food that they didn't grow? When they are the recipients of things that they did not sow into, how could they forget? Because just 40 years before this, they're slaves in the nation of Israel. How could you forget the Red Sea? And how could you forget that once you got out into the wilderness, and they're like, man, I'm starving. And the Lord God said, okay, well, here's some, here's some cornflakes. And then they complained, we want, corn, we want frosted flakes, not cornflakes. And how about some meat? And it was the greatest quail hunt ever. And quail every day would just show up and they would eat that. And what Moses is saying is, listen, when you move in, be careful lest you forget. Because I don't know about you, but man, if I'm not careful, (laughs) my memory of all that God has and is doing for me can just be wiped away in a second. See, there's this old hymn, and we love to sing it around here. And it's called, Come Thou Fount. And in that hymn, the hymn writer writes these words, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And I don't know about you. Anybody prone to wonder in here? Okay, there you go. We've got wanderers and liars. All right, welcome to 1122. Glad everybody's here. And I don't mean like prone to wonder. But I'm talking about prone to walk away from God. I know very few people that have sprinted their way from God. I know very few people that have been walking close to the Lord and say, you know what? They wake up one morning and they go, today I'm going to sprint headlong into death and destruction. It's typically just wondering. Every time I hear that song, I always think about, Cows and grazing and cattle guards and gates. You know why they got to put up fences for cows? Not because cows will take off running. I've never seen a group of cows get together and be like, all right, ready, sprint on three. One, two, ready, go. And they just take off in all different directions. You've never been driving down the road and a cow just darts across like a deer. No. You know what cows do? They're prone to wonder. They just eat a little bit of grass right here. And there's some grass right there. And they eat some grass right there. And there's some more right there. And they eat some right there. And then one day they wake up and be like, how did I get here? And that's the story of our Christian life, lest we forget. You just got your head down, off the cross, head down, just take it in some world, whatever, just a little bit of world, it ain't going to kill nobody, come on, we got freedom, take a little bit of world, take a little bit. And then one day you look up and you're like, whoa, how in the world did I end up here? We are prone to wonder. No custody battle. Nobody ever read, ran headlong into a custody battle. You know what happens? It's way back here, it started with a joke and a flirt, and a comment, they went to lunch, they went to dinner, they went to a fair, and then one day somebody's prone to wonder, like, how in the world do we end up here? And so what Moses is saying is, watch out, lest you forget, because when everything's going well, really, really well, when you've moved into houses that you didn't build, and you got food that you didn't even, you didn't even grow, and your belly is full, and your dependence for God is way down, and you become self-reliant, be careful lest you forget. So what we are talking about today is gratitude. Gratitude. Are you grateful for who God is and what he has done? You see, and the reality is, is our gratitude is directly related to the price that was paid for us. Our gratitude is directly related to the price that was paid for us. And as we take our eye off of the price that was paid, then our gratitude begins to decrease. So imagine this. Imagine when you get home today, you go into your house, and one of your buddies with refrigerator rights is at your house. I hope you have friends with refrigerator rights. If you don't, then you're not living into the fullness of Christianity that God has called you to. 
There's got to be some people in your life, and they don't have to knock. They just walk in. They don't have to where their glasses are. They just go to your refrigerator and get what you want, what they want, okay? And so just imagine, you get home today, and there they are, and you walk in and be like, oh, hey, Ted, and he's in your refrigerator, right? He's getting him something to drink, and then you're like, hey, what you doing? And he goes, hey, getting a drink, but a bill came in, and I paid it for you. What do you say? Well, depends on the bill, right? I mean, isn't that what you have to know? If it's like a library charge for a nickel, he's like, yeah, a library thing came in, paying my coverage, you don't worry about it. You're like, I appreciate it, but I'm pretty sure you're drinking more than a nickel's worth out of my refrigerator now, so whatever. But if you say, um, oh, I appreciate it, but what bill came in? And he goes, your mortgage. Like, what? You made a monthly payment to my mortgage? No, 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 I just covered the whole thing. Then what is your response? Get you some more drinks, Ted. <laughs> huh? Come on. You want to move into the house that you just bought for me? What do you need? You want me to cut your grass, raise your kids, paint your house? You tell me what you want from me, because I got you, bro. We dogs. We like this, all right? You don't ever have to knock. Here's the key to the house. That's what happens, because when you realize the bill that has been paid for you, then, then your gratitude is directly, directly linked to it. And so, it, it's why, by the way, I got a lot of comments last week from you, and they were positive, saying, wow, we love the way you honor Pastor Jerry. <laughs> you know how easy that is? It's not because I'm a good man. When you know what that man has done for us, when you know the price that he paid so that we could launch this church, then it's just the natural response to say, anybody that's laid down that much for me, I've got one response. That's my pastor. You better stand up and clap and cheer when he walks in the room. That's just the natural response because of the price paid. And so what Moses is saying is don't forget. Don't forget the price that God paid for us. So we'll talk about gratitude a little bit. Which leads me to this question, so how in the heck did this generation become so entitled? I mean, how in the world did this generation become so entitled? You see, you see because entitlement is really the opposite of gratitude. Entitlement is not thank you what you've done for me. Entitlement is you owe me. And I'm telling you, we live in a world right now that everybody owes us everything. You owe me health care. You owe me an education. You owe me a house bigger than my parents that took them 40 years to buy. You owe me comfort. You owe me everything on time. You owe me whatever I want, when I want it, with who I want it. You owe me. Now, here's the real problem with that. Is that why do you think I'm talking about somebody else and not you? It's just true. Here, here, let me tell you a generational trap that everybody's falling into right now. You don't think I'm talking about your generation. You think I'm talking about a younger generation. Even our 19-year-olds over here are like, those pesky middle schoolers need to learn to be appreciative, okay? And we laugh, but if there were 110-year-olds in here, they'd look at the 90s and be like, bunch of spoiled brats. All right, when we were kids, all right, and the 200, I'm telling you, it goes all the way down. And you know it's true, right? You're trying to raise good, godly kids. You ever take them to the happiest place on earth? You go in there, right, go to Disney, spend $3,000, stand in line, nine hours, ride two rides, and you still got to buy a $9 balloon on the way to the car so that it don't kill over and die. It's just true, isn't it? And you say, what is wrong with you? I think heaven, Moses is saying to this generation, what's wrong with him? What's wrong with you? Why do you think we're talking to somebody else? Can I tell you why I know I'm talking to you? Because I know I'm talking to me. Because last week, I, was, uh, I write my sermons in a tree stand on Monday morning. And then uh, on Wednesday, I had to fly to Charlotte and back for a meeting, right? And here's the thing. Um... Usually I fly with Delta, and I've been flying around, because of y'all, actually, because our church is growing so fast, I have to fly a lot now, fly around, tell everybody about, I don't know what we're doing, but it's working, okay? And so that's what I do. In fact, I leave today, go to San Diego, do it for a while, okay? And so, here's the thing, in all my flights, I usually fly Delta. We just decided we're going to pick one pony and ride it out, so now I have status with Delta. So it's cool, man, it's cool. Like today, when I go to the deal, I don't wait in line, everybody's waiting in line, and I'm walking through, ha, what's up, how's that line working, okay? I'm just going to be honest, man, you know? Take my shoes off? I don't have to take my shoes off. Oh, you potential terrorists, take your shoes off. Uh -huh, look at that. <laughs> don't have to get anything in my bag, put it in there. Don't have to take my jacket off. In fact, normally I don't even wear a jacket, but when I go to the airport, I wear a jacket just so everybody can see I don't have to take mine off. What's up? That's what I do <laughs> with Delta. There wasn't a flight that I could get on Delta from here to Charlotte on Wednesday and get me there on time and back, so I had to fly with U.S. Air. I ain't got status with U.S. Air. Show up to some U.S. Air, right? They're like, no, your line's over here. But like, what do you mean? I, gotta stand, I don't stand in lines, you know? Take your shoes off. What are you saying? I love our country. Let me lay my shoes on. Take your stuff out of the bag. What do you think in there? It's my Bible. I usually take my Bible out like that. <laughs> Just math. 
and then walk through it. And with Delta status, man, I can go into the little Sky Lounge, the room. Now, look, I'm new to all this, okay? I didn't even know the room existed until a year ago. They hide it off. You walk through these doors, like, what? Are we in Oz? What is this? <laughs> yeah, right? You're sitting in there. It's kind of free Wi-Fi snacks. Status snacks. I don't even like them. I just eat them. <laughs> Status snacks, right? Hang out in the room. On US Air, they don't let me in the room. Can't even get in. Got to sit out there with just the people. Sorry, Wi-Fi. I can check two things. It's horrible. And then when it's time to get on the plane, see, with my status, I get in first. I don't get to sit in the way up front with y'all, but I get to sit, like, you know, one layer back. But I get to come in. There's no way on the plane yet. Put my stuff up there. I got plenty of room to stretch out. With U.S. Air, no status. Guess what? Zone 5. I didn't know there was a Zone 5. <laughs> Check it in. Like, guys, a long plane. Can't even see down there to the end. Yeah, keep going. Keep going. I mean, there's people handing you water like in a marathon just to get back to my seat. <laughs> All the way back next to the toilet. That's me. I swear, if they put a, a seatbelt in the toilet, that would have been mine. They'd go ahead and buckle in there, hoss. <laughs> so there I am, two feet from the toilet. No, all, the, all the overhead, undercarry, everything's taken. i got to just hold on to my bag. I'm sitting there like this. And then, and then I'm just complaining. <clears throat> Sorry, man, U.S. Air. No wonder. You know, just... And then I open my Bible to work on a sermon on gratitude. <laughs> hey, wait a minute prone to wonder, every single one of us. I mean, like that, like that, you can think you owe me. Get real used to the blessing. Get real used to the blessing. And see, the problem is, when we, when we have that deep sense of entitlement, when we, lose, when we lose that attitude of gratitude, a big part of it is we begin to lose perspective on the greater picture. Because let me tell you what I was actually doing on Wednesday. I was participating in a, in a modern miracle. I mean, for thousands of years, people dream that one day you could fly in the sky and I got to sit in this recliner and fly from here to Charlotte to have a meeting with a bunch of pastors to plant about 100 churches in the next five years in the southeast through the Acts 29 network. I mean, to do good gospel ministry, then hop back on the plane and kick it back home and make it in time for dinner. That's what we're doing. And, and yet, I mean, you realize 200 years ago, a trip from Florida to North Carolina, that takes you like a month and part of the people on your trip don't make it. Yeah, you bury granddad in South Carolina. Peace, sorry. Good luck. We'll visit, right? And now what do you do? E even if you sit in the back and have to wait in line, you hop in there, you watch an Adam Sandler movie, you know, you get, some, get, a, get a free diet coat that costs you $1,000, and then you have your meeting, and then you come back. You see, in one second, if we aren't careful, we can immediately, immediately just forget, just forget all that the Lord has done and is doing to us. And I know I kind of sound like the old man today, right, I'm 42, but you, you guys remember, you remember when there was just coffee? You remember when there was just coffee? You would go to a place, what do you want to drink? Coffee? Okay, good. Nobody asked you, is the coffee there good? Why? Because it wasn't good anywhere. It was just coffee. The point was just to get some caffeine in you so you could make it through your day. And then what happened? They, they invented this amazing bean juice. And now what do we do? We compare it to that, you know? We drink, and we're like, oh, this is terrible. Why? It tastes like coffee. Here's what I need. I need it to be 9,000 degrees. I need it to cost $12. And I need half a pump of no-fat organic something, okay? And then we compare it that way. And in one second, I'm telling you, we can just drift. We can just drift towards this deep sense of entitlement, regardless of how old we are. How would we get there? A big part of the way we got there is this is our current understanding of this idea of pursuit of happiness. You know, I kind of like to rail against this idea of the pursuit of happiness. Uh, I did a little study in this week, and did you know that the idea, it originated with this guy named John Locke, and he wrote that the, the, the role of the government should be to protect our life, liberty, and personal property. And then Thomas Jefferson comes along, and he grabs that idea and says, amen, we should protect life, we should protect liberty, and instead of pri private property, he puts in the pursuit of happiness. Now, here's the problem, is that when Jefferson penned the pursuit of happiness, he was not talking about individualism. He was not talking about circumstantial comfort. It was, it was synonymous with this idea a couple hundred years ago of social happiness that was based on morality and common good. In other words, the pursuit of happiness was not, I'm going to do whatever's best for me currently, but I'm going to do what's best for us, and I know what's best for us as a community is to be God-fearing and stand up in, in morality and to do what's right, no matter what it costs me, and the government should protect my ability to pursue our common good. And somehow we took that and we began to shift it 
to make the whole world revolve around us and God save a nation where every single one of us are out for our individualistic, temporary comforts at the expense of everybody else. You see, we can go down that path in just a minute. And so, it just leads me to, to wonder if dependence on God is actually the goal. If dependence on God is actually the goal, then, isn't, then aren't things like weakness and desperation, aren't those things actually virtues and not abundance? And so God's warning to the nation of Israel, and I think to us today, is this. is be careful. Be careful that when the blessings of God come your way, that you don't worship the blessings, but you always worship the one whom the blessings come from. It reminds me of a prayer that's in, in Proverbs 30, verses 7 and 9. And here's the thing. I guarantee you nobody's going to pray this prayer. Here, here's what the prayer says. Proverbs 30, 7 to 9. It says, two things I ask of you, talking to God. Deny them not to me before I die. And here are the two things. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of God. There ain't nobody praying that today. Now we just say, God, make me rich. Let me be a demonstration of your grace by all the riches you give me. And what the writer of Proverbs is saying is, God, don't make me so broke that all I'm thinking about is being hungry, okay? But God, don't make, me, don't make it too easy either, lest I eat my fill and I don't think I need you. See, verse, Moses keeps going, 13. It is the Lord your God that you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Are you saying that God's a jealous God? I just read it, okay? Yes, God is a jealous God. Do you know this is why Oprah left the faith? And I want to go, come on, oh, you're smarter than that, all right? And here's the thing. Let me blow your mind real quick. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 4 that God is love. In 1 Corinthians 13, that love is not jealous. And then right here it says that God is a jealous God. So if A equals B and B equals C, then shouldn't A equals C? Well, yeah, but when 1 Corinthians 13 says that, that love is not jealous, it means that love is not jealous of. But love is absolutely jealous for. That love is, love is not jealous of. You think God's jealous of you? No. <laughs> jealous of what? Have you seen you? You think, you think you got in your truck to come to church today? And God's like, dang, that's a sweet ride. I wish I could get one like that. Oh. No. He's jealous of your house? <laughs> the universe is his and all that's in it. You think you're a little four, three and a half with the granite countertops? He's like, oh, some granite countertops are nice. Come on, man. You think he looks at your abs and it's like, oh, man, I wish I had time to work out like she does. No. He knows what you're going to look like in 20. He ain't jealous at all. But he's jealous for us. That means he don't share. And here's why. Because God ultimately is about God and his own glory. And, and, and that's not cocky if you're the most glorious thing of, in, in all of existence. For God to be about anything less than his own glory would be, would be horrible for us. It would be idolatry in and of himself. Because it's from him. He is the giver of every good and perfect gift. He is perfectly true. He is perfectly holy. He is perfectly honorable. In fact, when the lawyer comes to Jesus in the New Testament and said, hey, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus says, it's this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do you think God keeps his own commandments? Yeah. So you know what that means? The most important thing to God is himself and his own glory. And so here's what he knows. That he is jealous for us. And the reason that he will not share us and affections towards other gods, is it would be dumb and destructive to us. That the best thing that we could do is be about the glory of God that is for our joy. That we were created for Him and by Him and through Him and should be dedicated to Him. It's similar, it breaks down because we're such, such imperfect people. But I'm not jealous of my wife, but I'm jealous for her. I'm not jealous of her when, you, when she sings and you guys tell her she's awesome. I'm like, tell her some more. Tell her. All right, actually, it makes me more awesome, you know? If you don't think I'm that awesome, okay, I don't blame you. I go, have you met my wife? And you go, well, it's pretty awesome. All right, it's just true. But, but I am jealous for her. That means I don't share. I don't share. And here's why. I know that what God has joined together, let no one tear apart. And you try to tear it apart, I'll tell you, or tear you apart. 
And I, I don't mean that figuratively. I mean like I will start my prison ministry on the inside. That's what I'm saying, okay? Now, not only is it better for me and her because God has joined us together, but it's also better for my family, our entire family, for generations to come. We don't share that way. And God is saying he is a jealous God, and that's actually for our benefit, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. And then, just for the sake of time, what, what Moses continues to warn the people is in chapter 7, he says this, he basically says, you are a chosen people, holy, set apart. And then we find out in the book of Romans that anybody who has surrendered their life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, then we have been grafted into Israel, which means that we are a chosen people and that we have been set apart. And then he keeps going, and by the time you get to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 11, then God begins to repeat himself. And as you're doing Bible study, let me just, let me just give you a little tip here as you're studying the Word, is that any time God Almighty begins to repeat himself, you might want to pay attention. Because out of his mouth, he spoke into existence everything that is. That let there be light, and boom, there was, and it was good. And so if God says, oh, oh, oh let me say that one more time, then you might want to get out the highlighter and be like, what did he say again? And so he, he repeats himself almost verbatim. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 11, he says, Take care, lest you forget. Here it goes again. Pay attention, behold, shema, listen, Israel, because we are a forgetful people. So take care, be careful, lest you forget, because you know that you and I are prone to wonder. And so he says, take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I commanded you today. Do you realize a big part of the reason God gave us his word is so that we would not forget who God is and what he's done for us? Do you realize when we gather together here on, a, on Thursday or Sunday, whatever time you come, that when we gather here, it's a big old time for us to get together and remember who God is and what he's done for us. The reason that we put a reading plan in your notes is so that all throughout the week, you could study the living, active, breathing word of God, lest you forget who he is and what he's done for you. The reason we want you to get you in a disciple group sometime between the times that you come here and attend worship together is so that you don't forget who he is and what he's done for you. Why? Because we're so prone to wonder. We're so forgetful. Verse 12, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied. By the way, that's almost all of us in the room. That's us. Everything we have has been multiplied. Almost every single one of us had walked into a situation that we didn't have anything to do with. We're living in houses that we didn't build. I mean, who, who built their own house? I know one guy, Scott Putnell, all right? He's a guy that comes here at 1122. He's a house builder. And so I asked him, did you build your house? Yeah, I did. He goes, all right, well, listen. And that's what I tell him. You build it with what? Tools. Where'd you get those from? Lowe's. Where'd you pick them up with? My hands. Where'd you get those? God gave them to me. That everything we have is on loan from God. Everything. And some of you, let me tell you, a big, big danger in our culture is, no, 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 I'm a self-made man. Oh, yeah? What would you make you out of? Do you remember, you remember back in the day when you picked what country you were going to be born in? Oh, you don't remember that? Do you remember picking your parents and picking your opportunity? Do you remember that deal that just came through and you think, how did that happen? And you didn't have anything to do with it? Now, I'm not saying that God's sovereignty is, is an excuse for us to be lazy. Absolutely not. We honor God with how hard we work. But we don't ever take credit for His handiwork in us. That everything you have, every good and perfect gift is from above. And so Moses is like, be careful because every single one of us are here. Every single one of us, our gold and silver has been multiplied. We have more than we need. You know what that means? We are rich people. There may be a few of you in here that don't qualify, maybe. But by and large, the majority of us are some of the wealthiest people in the world. You know what some of us did today? Walked into a closet full of clothes, full of clothes. And what did you say? First thing you thought was, man, i got to take some of this to Hope's closet. And then you looked around and said, I have nothing to wear. Somebody in your family tried to help you. Come here, baby, look at what you just wear that. And you said, no, nah, that's out of season. And you thought... Well, I know deer have season, turkey have season. I didn't know a shirt had a season. I'm pretty sure it fits all the time, okay? And then whatever y'all figured out, put on three or four things and finally settled in, okay? 
And then what you do, you walk out <clears throat> into this little house that you built for your cars. And your cars don't even get to live in the house that you built for them anymore because it's full of your stuff. And now you have homeless cars out in your driveway. And then you know what you did? You walked out there. Think about it. And you chose which car you were going to drive here. Only about 5% of the world's population is rich enough to own one car. And you're picking, hmm, which one did we take today? It was usually based on who had most gas in their car, okay? So this, and so what Moses is saying is be careful, be careful, and here's why to be careful. When you find yourself in that kind of place, when you have more than you need, and which, is, which is most of us, verse 14, then your heart will be lifted up. Not just your mind, but like deep down in your guts. Your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. So as you look at all of that laundry list of all that God did for them and say, how do they forget? Because every single one of us are prone to wonder and we can forget in just a second of all of God's blessings. And here's why it's dangerous. Verse 17, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me all this wealth. Be careful that you say Look at me, aren't I awesome? And God looks at you and says, you are a joke. Whose oxygen were you breathing while you were going to school, huh? You, that everything we have is on loan for God. And the way that we get there, I don't think we necessarily intend to get there, but the way that we get there is that we're prone to, to wonder. And the reason that we wonder is lest we forget who God is and all that he has done for us. He goes on to say, verse 18, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. So look, there's nothing wrong with being wealthy as long as you understand that it is by God's hand and God's power that, that you receive blessing. He says, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Why? Because God's going to come get you? No, he don't have to because you're going to get you. You see, an attitude of ingratitude, an attitude of self-reliance, of, of deep, deep sense of entitlement, that puts you on a path of pride. And the Bible says God opposes the proud. And you were, your, your world's going to end in destruction. It's going to end in destruction. Do you realize when they asked Rockefeller on his deathbed, how much money is enough? He said, more just a few more dollars. He was about 10 times more wealthy than Bill Gates. And he said, it's not enough. What a miserable way to die. And so if you begin to go down that road of ingratitude and you think you did it all for you, yeah, good luck. Because no one is at the end of that road, just you. And it's going to be rotten. And yet there's another pathway. And this isn't just like, you know, name it and claim it, prosperity kind of junk. But there is a reality that when you begin to humble yourself before the Lord and work hard because he's been, he's been so good to you and you're so grateful for all that he has done for you and to you and through you, you begin to position yourself in such a way that you can receive blessings from God, but you don't worship the blessing. It stirs in you a worship for the one who has blessed you. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, gratitude exclaims very properly, how good of God to give me this. Tim Keller says, cosmic ingratitude, cosmic unthankfulness, is living in the illusion that we are self-sufficient, that we can call the shots, that we decide what's right or wrong, that we decide how to live. We hate the idea that we should be utterly and completely dependent and therefore thankful to God for everything, because then we'd lose control. Then we'd be obligated. Then we couldn't live the way we want, and we hate that. You see, Moses' warning thousands of years ago is a warning for us. And here's my prayer for us as a church, as a people, is that may God's blessing in our lives be vehicles for praising God, not obstacles to it. That's what John Calvin's saying. That, that may God's blessings in our lives stir in us praise where we praise the one that is blessing us, not begin to praise the blessing and therefore Make it an idol in our life. 
Because God doesn't just want to take everything away from you. God is a good dad. He, he loves to bless his children. Every parent in here gets that. Don't you love to give your kids stuff? As long as the stuff doesn't make them rotten. Nobody wants a spoiled kid. You want to, you want to lavish your love upon them, but the moment you see, the moment that you see that they're neglecting the relationship for the stuff, every single one of us, we wouldn't fuel that in their lives. Look, my kids don't always get it right, but Gretchen told on JP via Reagan on Thursday. When I got back from, from Charlotte on Wednesday, I decided to take the family to breakfast on Thursday morning, so I kind of cleared my calendar. We all went to breakfast, and on our way, we're getting out of the truck, and we're walking into the breakfast place, and, uh, and Gretchen says, listen to what JP did this week in school. He's in the fourth grade at Chex Creek. He's got awesome teachers, and they had these things in there called behavior bucks, okay? I mean, it is capitalism at its finest. You behave, you get this fake money, and then once a month, they have this little auction, and you can buy stuff, okay? And I know what the teachers are thinking. We'll do whatever it takes to get these little crazy people to sit down and listen, all right? And so <clears throat> JP had accrued 64 behavior bucks, which means he is blessed. He is wealthy. He is highly favored, all right? And so, in the auction, he took 50 of his 64 behavior bucks. And this is uh, Gretchen via Reagan telling me this. And he took 50 of his behavior bucks, and he bought a frozen backpack to give to his little sister. Oh, you dang right, all. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, 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 buddy, you took, you took, what can you get for 14? He's like, nothing. I'm going to have to wait a few more months so I can, you know, build some more back up. I was like, so you took your 50 behavior bucks? Yeah, 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 that's what I did. Why? I don't know. I just thought I would. I was like, well, guess what? Here, boom, you got 50 real dollars. Get whatever you want. <laughs> whatever you want. Why? Because he's trustworthy with it. That's why. Now, not all the time, but that, in that moment, totally trustworthy. And see, we serve a good dad, a good dad. <clears throat> and the last thing our perfect heavenly father would want to do would be to fuel your entitlement and to fuel your ingratitude and to fuel your self-reliance. Well, what he wants to do is give you vehicles of praise that would be lifted up to him. So how do you do it? So the opposite, doesn't take a linguist to figure this out. So the opposite of lest you forget is always remember. And so how do you create this, 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 how do you cultivate this attitude of gratitude? How do you remind yourself to be grateful, to be grateful and not fall into this trap that the Israelites fell into? I'm going to give you three things. The first two are tips and tricks, and they don't work without the third one. Number one is this. Get out your notes, by the way. Okay, get out, get out your notes. The first one is homework for everybody. I need everybody to do this. Number one, you're going to count your blessings, literally. You're going to count your blessings. Here's your homework. I want you to write down one blessing for every year you've been alive. Some of you, that's a lot. You've got to get on it, okay? For those of you that are writing of like 60, 70, 80 blessings down this week, let me just say this. You're my favorite 11, 22. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for being a part of this movement. We stand on your shoulders. Without you, we're just a tired old youth group. And thank you for demonstrating what an attitude of gratitude looks like to all of our generation. Thank you. But every single person, i got to write down 42 blessings this week. And I want you to literally write them down. Literally write them down. As I was talking to Pastor Britt about this message, he said one of the ways that he's training up his daughters to pray is this. He's got little girls. And... Uh, and right now, in their prayer time, the only way they pray right now is gratitude. Every prayer is just, God, thank you for, fill in the blank. He said, we'll get to adoration and supplication and some of those other things later. But right now, all he wants them thinking is when they, when they pray, their, their prayer mentality is, God, thank you for. And I thought, how about as a church, all week long, that would be our prayer mentality. In your 731 challenge, why don't we do that? Why don't we, look, he knows all the things that you need. You don't even have to ask, okay? Why don't we bring all of our prayers to God in this way this week? God, thank you for. And it starts by making a list of the things that you're grateful for. God, thank you for. And you write down one for every year you've been alive. Second thing is this, is we're going to talk about our blessings versus complaining. This week, I'm going to give you a seven-day challenge. For the next seven days, every single one of us is going to take this. Whether you sign, If you showed up, you signed up, okay? The next seven days, here's what we're going to do. The Bible says in Philippians 2.14, do everything without complaining or arguing. So what? This is the challenge. Over the next seven days, there's no complaining. And if you're like, well, whoa, whoa, some of you are going to complain about the challenge, all right? That should be a red flag in your own life. <laughs> and if you're like, no, 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 but you don't understand this situation. Okay, take that situation. If it falls under the everything category, then do everything without complaining or arguing. Got it? Now, here's the context by which Philippians 2.14 comes out of. 
It says that your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself, he emptied himself, is what it literally means, which is funny because we're mostly full of ourselves. He emptied himself to obedience, even, even death on a cross. Therefore, do everything without complaining or arguing so that you might shine like stars in a crooked and depraved generation. You want to stick out in this world? Then don't complain. So this is it, okay? You got it? For the next seven days, there's no complaining. And instead, every time you feel like you want to complain, instead of complaining, I want you to talk out loud about a blessing. So I want you to take your list. I want you to take your list, and I want you to put it in the place that you tend to complain the most. Some of you are going to need to photocopy this about 47 times, okay? Just put it up all over the place. So maybe it's your car. You put it in your car. And when you're driving down JTB tomorrow morning, you're going to work, and you just don't, you just don't know why. Why does this person in front of me not understand how important I am and where I'm going? And so instead of complaining about them, then you're going to thank God that you get to drive in a car. I mean, you know, it literally about 5% of the world owns their own vehicle. You would thank God, okay? Or maybe you put it in your kid's room. And when you walk in there and you step on a Lego and it shoots a pain up into your soul, like I don't know how it does, and it does not stir in you worship. And you know you've told the kid a billion times, no lie, a billion, maybe more, no exaggeration, a billion. And you're going to want to bring the vengeance of the Lord, but you're not. You're going to stop for a minute and you're going you're to thank God that he's, of all the parents in the entire world, he chose you to shape that little life. Now you shape him to get his Legos out of the way for sure, but you're not going to complain. Or your boss, and, and, and you're going to sit at your cubicle this week, and your boss is going to come by, and he's a jerk. He just is. I get it. He was one of those kids who got spoiled, and nobody ever told him. Now he grew up. Now we've got words for that. We, don't, we can't use them here today. And, and he's your boss. I'm not saying he's not a jerk. I'm just saying instead of complaining about the situation, I know it not, might not be your dream job, but there's a lot of people dreaming they had a job right now. There's a lot of people who would trade with you right now for that jerk of a boss. And so you're going to thank God and praise him for whatever. Okay? And, and, here, and here's what's going to happen. Trust me. Philippians 2.14, do everything without complaining or arguing. Sure enough, this week, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you're going to be driving on JTB, and you're going to be like, it's going to be stirring in you, and you're going to look down at the clock on your radio, and it's going to be 2.14. You're like, wait a minute. That's do everything without complaining or arguing. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He just brings those Bible verses to your mind. And I'm going to unleash you for one week. You get seven days to do this, okay? For the next seven days, if you see anybody in your family, any 1122-er, and they are complaining or arguing, then no matter what time of day it is, you just look at your watch and be like, ooh, it's almost 2.15. See, because it's 2.14, and we do everything without complaining or arguing, okay? And do it real self-righteous-like. Now, we'll talk about self-righteousness in another sermon, but do it. <laughs> Call each other out. No complaining, no arguing. And, here, and here's why. Here's why. Because of number three, you've got to preach the gospel to yourself. This is where it's rooted. The first two won't work without number three. The soil that this grows in is to be deeply, deeply rooted in the good news of Jesus Christ. That you would be rooted in the gospel, which means you've got to remind yourself of the gospel. That means you remind yourself of who God is and what he's done for you. If you see over and over and over, at least three times now, Moses said, be careful lest you forget the God that brought you out of Egypt. See, if you, if you go back to chapter 6, verse 20, it says, when your son asks you in the time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. <clears throat> you see, you've got to gain perspective because your gratitude is directly linked to your perception of the price that was paid. And so what Moses was instructing the people is when your kids forget, when your kids feel entitled, when they do, then here's what you do. You remind them, don't you remember? We were, we were slaves in the land of Egypt, and we cried out to God for year after year after year, and then God sent his messenger, Moses, and he, and he struck Pharaoh with ten different plagues, and on the tenth plague, we took the, we took the blood of a spotless lamb, and we shed it, and we put it on the doorpost of our house, and then the angel of death came and passed over anybody that had the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of their home, and then God rescued us out of Egypt and we crossed over the Red Sea and we came into this land where God made his presence made, made known to us and he gave us his laws and he called us his people and now he's escorting us into the promised land. And look, that's not a history lesson. 
It is a foreshadowing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you how you stay grounded in gratitude is that you remind yourself of the gospel. That's a big part of what this is. When we gather to worship God together on the weekends here or on Thursday night or whenever you attend, it's to remind us of who God is and what He's done for us. And what He's done is that every single one of us were slaves to our own sinfulness and He came on a rescue mission. And He shed His own blood to be put on the doorposts of our own hearts and that whoever would surrender to Jesus that we've been rescued, saved. And I'm not talking about just some theology. I'm talking about me. You know what keeps me from being entitled? You know what I have to constantly remind myself of? Is that I'm a wretched, black-hearted sinner. That's not just some phrase I came up with because I think it's cute. It is just a testimony of my own life. This is the truth. You don't know me. You don't know me. You don't know what I was saved from. You don't know what goes on in here and what goes on in here. You don't know how many people I've lied to and cheated and abused. You have no idea how easy it is for me to cut you down to try to make me look better in a second because of my own insecurity. You don't know how many times I lived one way with one group and another with another just based on what people would think of me. I'm telling you, I'm the worst sinner in the room. And yet, and yet by His grace and by His mercy, because of His sovereign, mighty right hand, He reached down and He grabbed me, a nobody, a nothing, and He got nothing out of the deal but a headache. And he reaches down, and he grabs me, and he washes me off, and he doesn't just leave me there and redeem me, but he actually adopted me into his family to be a son of God. And as I grow in the gospel, two things grow in my perception. One is I have a greater, greater, greater understanding of his holiness and of his majesty and of his glory, and it's infinitely bigger than the books I read in seminary. And simultaneous to that, I have a greater understanding of the fact that I wasn't just bad and needed to be better. I was dead in my trespasses, but God made me alive. And the only thing, the only thing that can fill that chasm between the holiness of God and the depravity of my own soul is the cross of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus died on that cross and he says, it is finished, that junk counted for me. And I will be grateful. How about you? You see, a right view of the gospel, a right view of the gospel results in gratitude. A right view of the gospel results in gratitude. Because here's what I know. I am a great sinner, and I have a greater Savior. It's why all throughout the New Testament, in the epistles, those are the little books, in between the gospels and Revelation, Paul mostly He says, I want to remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel. Why? Because we need to continuously remind ourselves of the gospel. Why? Lest we forget and have full bellies and say, look what I did for me. Today we're going to celebrate Holy Communion, which I don't know if you've ever thought about this. It is a reminder of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're sitting on the end, you have some of the elements under your seat. If you would grab them and start passing them down. Now, somebody in the middle, we believe in you. You're going to do a matrix move. You're going to get both at one time, okay? And we, we think you can do it. Start passing them down, get a piece of bread, and get some juice. This is a movement for all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. The Lord's table is a celebration for all people who have discovered and deepened a relationship with Jesus Christ. We would invite you, if you know Christ, to partake in this. And here's why. Here's a big reason why Jesus did this. This is important. It's to remind us of the gospel. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread. He passed it out, and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Now, some of you, if you grew up in church, you've done this a hundred million times. You're not even thinking about it right now. Some of you are thinking, it was about time. Listen, when Jesus said this, the disciples freaked out. This was the Passover meal. Do you know what they were celebrating? They were celebrating what Moses said, never forget. Because we were slaves in Egypt. And by God's mighty right hand, he rescued us from slavery. And the big way he did it is they shed the blood of a lamb and put it on the doorposts of the houses. And he says, so remember. But he broke all the rules. He's a rabbi. There's a script you're supposed to go by. He says, this is my body. No, no, no. I thought it was like the, the blood of a lamb. See, they don't know. that He's, he's basically going, tomorrow it's going to make a lot more sense. Because he's going to be crucified. But here's what you need to know. This is my body. Broken for you. And after I do this, you don't have to shed the blood of a bunch of lambs anymore because I am the lamb that's come to take away the sin 
not of just religious people or Jewish people, but of all the people that would surrender to me. And then he says, as often as you do so, do it what? In remembrance of me. And then he holds up the cup. And again, I can't communicate to the degree at which the disciples were going, what is he going to say now? I mean, he is changing all the rules. He's actually fulfilling them, not changing any of them. He holds up the cup. And he says, this is the cup of the new covenant or the new testament. This is my blood. You see, the old covenant or the old testament was a testament of law. If you don't break the law, I mean, if you don't keep the law, uh-oh. And he says, the old covenant is a covenant of law. The new covenant is a covenant of grace. The reality is you can't keep the old covenant. It was just a precursor that the lamb was coming to shed his blood, not for the covering of your sin for one year, but so that it would wash away your sin. And not just wash it away, but you would get credit for what I have done. You would get a new name. You would get my name. This is a covenant of grace. My blood shed for the forgiveness of sin. And then he says, and as often as you drink of it, do so in remembrance of me. Why? Lest you forget. As often as you drink of this cup, do so in remembrance of me. And then the Bible instructs us that we should do this as a church often. Why? So that we don't forget. So that we don't forget what? So that we don't forget who he is and what he's done. Because when we don't forget the price he paid for us, when it is front and center on our minds and on our hearts and on our souls, when we understand that he paid the full price, then the natural response to that is gratitude to God. God, thank you, thank you, thank you for all the blessings in our life. So would you please stand and pray with me? Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, God, what else is there but the gospel? God, as we go back to our homes that we didn't build, as we eat food that we didn't grow, as we live in opportunities that we did not pay for, God, as we eat our fill, God, may we not forget you, the giver of every, of every good and perfect gift. And God, we, we must know this. Please ingrain in our souls this truth, that if you died for us, then God, you are for us. You are a good dad. A good dad. God, we thank you that you love and discipline us. And God, may this church be a grateful, grateful church for who you are and what you've done. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, folks, we respond to the gospel. That's what we do. And we respond with an attitude of gratitude. A bunch of us need to come to the altar and kneel down and say, thank you, God, because most week you've been complaining about. And then every single person that calls 1122 home, we need to bring our first and our best, our tithes and our offerings to God because he has blessed us so richly, primarily in his son, Jesus Christ. And then we sing with a heart of gratitude to God that we believe he is who he says he is and he always keeps his promises. Let's respond.